if you have a, a team that is focusing solely on features and new shiny things in your application, that's fine. But there comes a point where it doesn't matter how many new features you add, if you suddenly have an outage and every system crashes because there's been no thought put into the resiliency of that system. It doesn't matter how fancy your uh, your application is if no one can get to it because you've not thought about how it handles failure. Welcome to the Software Misadventures podcast, where we sit down with software and DevOps experts to hear their stories from the trenches about how software breaks in production. We are your hosts, Ronak, Austin, and Guang. We've seen firsthand how stressful it is when something breaks in production, but it's the best opportunity to learn about a system more deeply. When most of us started in this field, we didn't really know what to expect and wish there were more resources on how veteran engineers overcame the daunting task of debugging complex systems. In these conversations, we discuss the principles and practical tips to build resilient software, as well as advice to grow as technical leaders. Hey everyone, this is Ronak here. In this episode, Austin and I speak with Oliver Leversmith, better known as Olds. Olds is a DevOps engineer at Skybedding and Gaming. He has been interested in technology, specifically how it breaks, from a very young age. This interest of his aligns very much with ours, and we had a lot of fun speaking with him. We discuss how a seemingly simple monitoring change ended up taking down the entire site. We also talk about chaos and resilience engineering, a topic Olds deeply cares about. We discuss how his team at Skybetting and Gaming conducts fire drills, in other words, chaos engineering exercises, where they not only test the resiliency of their software systems, but also their people systems. We walk through a recent example of a fire drill that Olds lit himself. We talk about how these fire drills have evolved over the last few years and the lessons learned in the process. Please enjoy this fun conversation with Olds. Olds, welcome to the show. We are super excited to have you here. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. So we were researching for this episode and I was reading about you on the internet. Uh, there was one bit which I found which 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 kind of stood out. Uh, at least I was fascinated by it and I want to know more about this. So back in 2003, uh, I found a bio which said that back in 2003, you were learning more about setting up Red Hat and you unintentionally upgraded your dad's Windows XP machine to Red Hat 9. Uh, I'm very curious about how that happened. Can you share that story with us? Yeah, so I, I use the term upgraded, Rob. He used the term ruined. Uh, I, I think I upgraded <laughs> him. Um, so basically, he had this uh, this book of Sam's Teach Yourself Red Hat uh, on his bookshelf. And it had a CD in it to to run like a live instance of Red Hat 9. Um, so I put that in, uh, in his computer because I didn't have my own at the time. Hmm. And I clicked through the uh, clicked around the live CD a bit and thought this is, is quite interesting. Um, I'm going to install it. I thought it was just like you know when you install a game or anything. There was a little install button on the desktop, so I thought I'll click that. Mm -hmm. uh, I went through the install steps, and um, it said it's now safe to restart your computer or whatever. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I don't know why I need to restart, but fine. Um, and when I went to restart, uh, all I had was Grub. <laughs> and uh, and the the option for Red Hat Nine, yeah. and uh, I I couldn't work out what I'd done because I, I was at the stage where I didn't I was dangerous enough to know how to do things, but not why I was doing them and what the actual effect would be. <laughs> uh, this did actually result in getting my own computer though uh, to tinker on. So that I see it as a positive, really. Oh yeah, there is there is a bright side to it. Uh, with I, I can't imagine if your dad was pissed off. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I got I, I got a terrible computer out of it. It was like a reject from work or something that nobody wanted. <laughs> well, at least you got your own computer to play exactly, with. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, can you tell us a little bit about your background? I know a lot of listeners would want to know uh, how you started off. I saw your LinkedIn profile, and it said that you started off as a network engineer, uh, and now you're more in the DevOps space. So, we would love to hear from you. Yeah. So, I started off. Um, I started off on like help desk type thing um, at a, at an ISP, 
so the natural progression there for me was to go into networking as a as a discipline. Uh, so I went up sort of through the ranks in the in the help desk and then started being a, a real network engineer. Mm. Uh, and then I moved to another ISP and got more in the weeds of networking. Um, and then I I branched out from ISPs and went to um, started in the gambling sector mm-hmm. um, as a network engineer still, but. I found the the environment that the fast pace, the um, the ridiculously short downtimes that you were permitted, all that sort of thing. I found that really really interesting, um, and I kind of I saw what these uh, these DevOps engineers were doing and these all these infrastructure engineers, and I saw how they were not automating themselves out of a job, but doing less doing more with the time they had um, by doing less actual work and toil and spending more time on it, working out how they could uh, automate their jobs. Mm-hmm. So I did quite a bit uh, to automate the boring stuff that we had to do as, as network engineers. So um, like device config audits and all that sort of stuff. Um, and that that really like piqued my interest in, in the automation side of things. Uh, so I saw a, um, a job advert for a... DevOps engineer, um, and I'd, I'd already I always like had Linux as like in my back pocket and that sort of stuff. So I thought, you know what, I'll I'll make the jump. I've, I know this DevOps thing from a networking perspective. Yeah, I know a bit about Linux, so why not? And it's gone from there. But it, it's good to it's good to have like a specialism that isn't necessarily just DevOps because you know if you want to if you want to get that full view of the whole stack as a team yeah you really need people that have got you know the, the t-shaped developer if you like or the t-shaped uh, engineer oh that's got the specialism so it's, it's worked out all right for me yeah i mean I, I know a lot of devops engineers who come from many different backgrounds i mean including austin and myself we we come from uh, uh i don't know if you would call it an unconventional if everyone is coming from unconventional backgrounds uh but yeah the, having expertise in one domain certainly helps uh so now that you're a devops engineer at uh sky betting and gaming can you tell us a little bit about your team your role like what you do day to day and what does your team structure look like yeah, so Sky Betting and Gaming itself uh, uses the tribal model uh, that Spotify uh, invented and uh, made famous. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the tribe I am in is called uh, Core. Okay. And uh, how, how the tribes work, it's kind of like they're all individual companies that, that take resources off each other as if they are individual businesses. Hmm. So in Core Tribe, where I am... Um, what we focus on is a lot of uh, sort of key account uh, functionality. So we don't really talk, we don't really deal with the the betting or the casino side of things. Um, we're primarily, you know, user registration and um, identity verification, payments, uh, like taking taking payments from customers and and uh, sending withdrawals out. Um, so we're we're sort of like the the beating heart, if you like, that a lot of other tribes within the company um, like utilise. The team I'm in is a specific platform team, so there are feature squads um, that have different areas of uh, expertise in their different domains, different applications. Uh, but the platform squad that I'm in kind of sits underneath all that and supports the uh, the development and the uh, the rollout of like new new features and new products. So we we do it in kind of a few different, uh, rather interesting ways. Uh, so we'll sometimes get like parachuted into a team to be like uh, you know some like SWAT style platform resource that just needs to like spin up a database cluster or something quickly to allow uh, to allow a team to start developing something. Mm. Um, but but other other times we'll be kind of pulled into this. Uh, the the phrase we use is a pop up squad which is a like a single use um squad from different domains that can all come together and um and do do good things so the, the most recent example of this is we had um we had some gdpr uh work to do which is for those that don't know is the uh, the eu data privacy yeah. regulation stuff um so this needs this needed some some developers to to um, make changes on some of their systems. It required platform there to ensure that backups were being kept at the right amount of times of, of databases and all this sort of thing. So 
it's quite a um, quite playing like hard and loose with the the definition of a feature squad, um, but like I say, it works for us and uh, and it's good to uh, to get the different um, exposure to different areas of the business that you wouldn't necessarily if you were just being a platform engineer working on just platforms. Mm, that makes sense, and it's actually very interesting. Like the the tribe structure that you mentioned, uh, I actually want to dig in a little bit into that if if you don't mind. Uh, so you mentioned you're part of the core tribe team. So does a tribe have like multiple teams within it and the other teams you work with, are they part of different tribes or would they, would they be part of the same tribe? So the teams that are in the core tribe, I'll try not to leave any out in case anyone <laughs> from work is listening because that would be terrible. Um, so obviously there's the, most important, there's the most important one, which is platform. And then there are there's a squad um, that is focused on uh, account as a service. So that includes um, like the actual account bit you see when you log in. Um, so like you're changing your details and your credentials and everything. And also things like uh, any any exclusions you want to put on your account if you feel that you're spending too much money on site um all the all the tools that we have there to to help you manage that as a customer are all part of that team there's also then uh the payments squad which solely look after taking all the money and giving it back um and then the another squad is the onboarding squad that handle getting customers through the door um in a responsible way and also ensuring that we can verify they are who they say they are um you know whether that be using third party um identity providers or manually um verifying documentation that the that the customer will, will provide um i think that's it that's it yeah there's okay. a, there's a lot of there's a lot of like um principal engineers that kind of float around different squads depending on where the uh where the resource is needed but they're the main the main squads um and that that pattern of a tribe made up of multiple squads that have a specific domain to look after that is what is replicated across the business in different tribes i see makes sense it's a, it's a fascinating concept and how many people are on the core tribe in general how many engineers total uh engineers i would guess probably around 60 to 80 including all disciplines like test and software dev and platform i see a pretty big group though um and for for some of our listeners who might not be fully aware can you tell us a little bit about uh what sky betting and gaming as a company does yes yeah, so we are um i think we are the biggest online bookmaker in the uk um so we do um your traditional sports book betting so betting on football, soccer, um, <laughs> and uh, and horse racing and things like that. Uh, and then we also have um, online gaming platforms. So your traditional sort of slot machines online, mm -hmm. uh, live casino with croupiers spinning roulette wheels and things like that. Um, and then we also have a lot of... Um, the, uh, a lot of products that are free to play. Um, so we have things like um a prize machine where you it's free to spin and you win money or um or free spins elsewhere um we have things like where you can um you can put a free a free guess on the outcome of a few different football matches and if that if that matches the actual uh results then you win money um we're we're lucky in that we we're closely affiliated with sky the company which is is quite a good brand um and that's it's like it's very much um the brand you think of when you think about sports at least in the uk uh, because they've they're sort of the home of premier league football for, for a long time mm -hmm. makes sense so considering there is a uh, lot of payments involved uh people are betting so i would imagine performance and reliability would be of paramount importance of all the systems that you're working with uh, and the requirements would be extremely tight 
Yeah, so we we're unfortunate, I guess you could say, in that everyone in the in the business relies on us um, and our availability. So if one of the one of the other tribes that uh, say if the bet tribe has a problem with their website, the the gaming tribe they can continue to run their products. Um, whereas if our services go down, then every every single consumer of our services is having the same problem. So we are. Uh, rightly so, we are held to a very high standard uh, in terms of our system performance anyway. <laughs> nice. Uh, so, you know, today you, you published a blog post recently on your website about uh, how a seemingly benign monitoring change resulted into uh, an outage uh, resulting in making your systems grind to a halt. I know we want to dig more into that. Uh, and... Austin here is on the monitoring infrastructure team at LinkedIn. Uh, so I'm going to let him drive this part because he is extremely excited to talk to you about this. Yeah, so um, yeah, I, I'm on the monitoring infrastructure team. Uh, we've, we've seen we provide a monitoring platform pretty much for all of the variety of applications at, at LinkedIn. Um, and we expect it to run smoothly all the time and shouldn't affect the applications in, in most circumstances. Um, so like this is uh, really interesting for me. Um, can you give us a little bit of background on the kind of the systems that you were monitoring um, for this particular incident? Yeah, so I'm, I'm fine talking about this because I was the one that did it. Um, so I, uh, I'd, I don't mind throwing the engineer that did it under the bus at all because that engineer <laughs> was me. Um, and it's, it's healthy to talk about your failures, right? So it's it's good to talk about it. So the specific um, application that we were want that we were wanting to monitor in this instance um, was part of our the, the sort of voodoo backend, the very legacy backend, um, the talks directly to the database sort of systems, rather than anything further up the stack. And we're in the situation where this particular um, application that talks directly to the database is one that is provided to us by a third party uh, and it's closed source. We have like a route into them for uh, bug fix and feature releases and that sort of thing but um, but that's on like a, um, a consultancy basis. So something that we requested from them was uh, a metrics endpoint that we could scrape to tell us how many unfulfilled payments were in the queue of payments waiting to be fulfilled. So how our payment fulfillment works, um, not just at, at Sky Betting Gaming anywhere, is there'll be an initial sort of um, hold on the bank account that says, is this money available? The bank says, yes, that's fine. And then at a later date, the actual fulfillment taking the money from the bank will happen. So the this queue is the payments that are in that state between yes the money's there and actually having taken the money so we can see from this if this queue grows and it doesn't seem to be coming down we can see or oh, maybe there's a problem with actually taking the money that customers have asked us to take from their account um and it's, it's easily rectified we just need to talk to you know whoever owns that service get them to maybe restart it and everything's happy again um so that's that's what we wanted to monitor, and we asked the the third party that that managed that application for us to provide that metrics endpoint, and they did, um, and it worked. Yeah, there's a metrics endpoint. There's some metrics on it. Cool. We'll come to that in a bit when we've got some more time to actually implement a proper monitoring check around it. Um, and then it, yeah, it kind of sat for a good few months. You know, the people that were working on it initially moved on to a different thing, different project, and uh, and then that's when I came into the point and, and started actually looking at it again. Interesting. And that's when the fun started. Yeah. So it's it's interesting that you mentioned like the third party um, application, or just like a third party providing um, like the metrics endpoint for this particular use case. You mentioned that there's like this backend uh, kind of, I guess, legacy database. Um, were was your team like unable to access the database directly, and this was just something that the third party had kind of like the sole access to? Um, what I'm trying to get at is, 
I'm really interested about like the trade-off of, you know, asking the third party to provide, you know, a solution uh, to you guys, or was it something that you guys could also build yourself, but it's one of those things where it's like, you know, it's just not worth our time. They're the subject matter experts on this. Uh, let's let them do it. Yeah. So the, we have access to the databases if we need them. Um, and as sky betting and gaming, not necessarily my team, because we we don't have a reason of uh, we have a reason to get into that database because of the information that's contained within it. So a separation of privileges and all, all that sort of thing. Um, so us as a company have access to those databases, but my team specifically don't. Um, we had built something that did kind of this sort of monitoring in the past um, based on the information that we had to hand, which was basically uh, tailing the log files um, and checking for any errors there. And that gave us an indication that there were failures to fulfill the payments. But what it didn't tell us is if payment fulfillment was just not running for a particular reason. Um, so that, that slight nuance is why we, we needed to get, actually get into the application to um, to get that, that further detail. And, and like I say, it's not an open source application that's run. So the only the only route we had was was via the third party. Got it. All right. That's really interesting. Um, and I kind of want to take a step back a little bit. Um, I know Ronica and myself are very familiar with this. We've worked with Prometheus um, as, a, as a monitoring um, solution. And so you mentioned like this uh, query exporter from this third party. Can you kind of briefly explain um, kind of to the audience that may be not familiar with this, what a Prometheus query exporter is um, and what they may not be aware of? So I'm, I'm also... Uh, new to Prometheus and the world of query exporters, which is where a lot of the failure came from in this. <laughs> so my understanding, at least, a query exporter is something that's built into the application which will um, provide metrics on how an application is behaving or not behaving so that your Prometheus server, which is a time series database, will be able to scrape that endpoint and pull in those metrics and observe what the application is, is doing. So my understanding, this is this is the this is where it all fell down really. My understanding is that a Prometheus or my understanding was a Prometheus exporter, a query exporter, will just present a static metrics page that is updated by the application. However, what I've since learned after looking into this is that um best practices from Prometheus actually dictate that when you hit that metrics endpoint, it then does the work to generate the metrics. Um, and that's, yeah, that's that's a bit that I wasn't aware of um, and is what made this so entertaining. Yeah, that's super interesting because I intuitively would have thought exactly like what you were talking about is the process itself is responsible for updating it. And, and you know, that kind of has a nice separation of concerns. Um, it looks like it's an interesting trade-off that I guess Prometheus made on like how fresh the data is. Um, uh, so uh, that's uh, super interesting. And when the third party provided this query exporter to, to you, um, I'm curious, was this going to be something that just ran on one machine or was this something that you would have to roll out to probably multiple uh, VMs at this point? And like, so how did that rollout process work given that it's, you know, a third party? So the, uh, the query exporter uh, application itself was going to run on all the machines that were responsible for um, for doing that fulfillment process. So we have multiple uh, multiple machines that do it, uh, like on a round robin queue basis. Um, and yeah, this this metrics endpoint was going to um, run on all of them, but not necessarily. Uh, because it was looking at what was left in the database, the number of items that were left in the database, it didn't matter which um, which of the servers was running the fulfillment process at that moment in time, because any of them could be hit on the metrics endpoint and still get the same data. Got it. Um, and so you mentioned like you you had rolled this out um, and it's it sat there for several months. Um, and I recall reading from the blog, there were, you know, there's some firewall things that you guys were trying to work through and all sorts of things, which probably added to the delay. 
So kind of like fast forwarding to uh, maybe more the exciting part. Once that <laughs> firewall uh, kind of said, cool, yeah, you guys are, you guys are good to go. Um, can you kind of like talk a little bit about kind of the events that unfolded um, after that? Yeah, sure. So I, um, I got everything running as far as Prometheus was concerned. Uh, it was attempting to scrape the endpoint with our, our default um, our default settings, which was have a timeout of 10 seconds and scrape every 30 seconds. Um, and then when, when you look on the Prometheus um, list of targets that it is scraping um, on the web UE, you'll see that it says um, whether the target is healthy or not. And the the query exporter that we were looking at said um, connection reset or something along those lines. So we think, oh, firewall, right. Put the firewall request in. I'm going home. See you tomorrow, sort of thing. Um, and then the, the firewall request, how our firewalls uh, requests work is they're largely automated in terms of the, the elaboration of which firewall it needs to go on, which uh, interfaces, which uh, which groups of IP addresses, etc., and also the the actual implementation is automated as well. So this went through the automation process, um, and the firewall was the firewall rule was put in place. And at that point, Prometheus says, "Right, let me at it," and it starts polling the um, the metrics endpoint. Now here is the the interesting bit in that the actual, I mentioned earlier, it's not a static metrics page that is populated by the application. It's something that runs every time the metrics endpoint is hit. And the request that was being made is um, quite a big one because we are looking at the total number of unfulfilled payments in the past week, which is a big number. Like it's bringing back millions and millions of records um, every time this request is made to the database. So that starts to slow down the database a little because it's doing quite a lot of work and it's taking probably 16 seconds to return the data. We're timing out after 10 seconds. We don't really care. Um, and the, the query exporter doesn't care that we're timing out from Prometheus because it's run the query and it's waiting for the response regardless of what Prometheus thinks. So it starts to take a little longer than 16, 20 seconds. It starts to creep up, creep up a little longer. And then we're at the stage where it's taking longer to run the query than the interval of the query itself. So we've got multiple queries. We've got 10 times this query. Running. We've got very much queued up. And uh, all of a sudden, the database that is containing these, uh, these payments records that also contains things like, you know, user credentials, um, makes it so that it's not able to be read anymore because it's just too busy, which results in logins failing for a start, um, issues with people being able to place bets if they are already logged in. Um, you know, this this is a total outage, essentially, because um, this this query is just running itself into the ground. Interesting. Yeah, and it's uh, it's... You, you mentioned in the blog about like um, um, like the, the breakdown of communication and understanding what the query exporter um, application was doing. Um, but even beyond that, too, of just like, you know, not everyone's familiar with the query exporter, probably just learning, figuring this stuff out. But also from the third party um, team, uh, were they able to provide any sort of like documentation about um, this thing that they, they had just uh, shipped to you guys? Um, or is this also maybe just something new to them, too? So there wasn't any documentation that I saw. Um, it was just like a handover from one team member to another. Um, but when they found out what we were doing with that query, they were very shocked that that's how we decided to do things. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, so they, we were not following their best practices of how to, uh, how to get that data. I see, I see. They they says uh, yeah this that's a pretty heavy query to be running every thirty seconds. You should be doing that every like you know twenty minutes maybe. The data you know if if you're trending how many payments have failed to be fulfilled over the past week, that's not really data you need to be renewed every thirty seconds. You Fair can enough. you can have half an hour to an hour delay on that data. Got it. 
So I guess moving forward now that you guys were, have been able to were able to root cause that like okay yeah this query pattern is going to generally going to be expensive we can't afford to you know keep thrashing the database like this um, what did you guys end up moving more towards um, you know trying again trying to balance this whole aspect of is my data the most fresh it can be right now or like can I can I wait sort of thing. Yeah, so we, we made a couple of changes to the actual application itself, the query exporter application, in that it won't run if there are already two processes of it running, um, which would have been a nice thing to have from the beginning, but sure. you know, <laughs> you, li you, live and learn, <laughs> you live and learn, and it's certainly going to be something we put into things in future. Um, and then, yeah, we, we went back to the team that specifically looks after the payment side of things. And um, you know, we had a conversation with them about how how fresh do you need this data? Um, because on a busy after a busy week, um, we did some uh, some calculations with the database team, and we did, we worked out that on a really busy week, um, this query could take upwards of two minutes to return all the data. Um, so that that now runs every half an hour. And uh, and that was like the trade-off, like you say, between the freshness of data and the stability of um, of the database. But really, it could now run every probably every minute because now we've got this uh, this safeguard in place of it's not going to run if there's already one, already one running. We could make it um, make it more frequent, but it's. Uh, it's not on anyone's roadmap to make it more frequent, you know, just in case. Right. right. I don't think anyone's going to be arguing for that at this right. time. <laughs> I think everyone remembers and they're like, yeah, let's, let's step away it's from that. It's still a bit, a bit raw, I think. <laughs> yeah, so after all is said and done, um, I think, like, I mean, there sounded like there was definitely going to be a lot of eyes on this. What were some of like, kind of like the big learnings that your, that your team or maybe even other teams got um, out of this incident? Uh, so our team... Uh, we took a lot of learnings from it, um, sort of procedurally, about handing off work to other people. And if you pick up a piece of work that has been dormant for a while, you really need to put the effort in up front to uh, to understand exactly what the state of things are. And if you're not, if you don't feel that you're knowledgeable enough to pick that specific bit up, you, then the onus is on you to. Uh, either seek out that extra information from the person who worked on it previously or from the internet because you know I, I googled Prometheus exporter query exporter and it said oh yeah the best practice is to run the command every single time it's hit if I'd have done that at the start then we wouldn't have been in this situation um, the other main uh, big learning that had a lot of focus from uh, from higher ups in the company was the fact that it wasn't me as the engineer owning that system that put the check live, it was the automated firewall rule that ran at some point in the evening that put that live. When I noticed that the check was failing because it couldn't talk to the endpoint, at that point I should have removed the check or disabled it, sorted the firewall access out and then re-enabled it. But that's where the whole, it's just a monitoring change um, misnomer comes in. It's like, how much harm can it do, really? Right, right. Just letting that, letting that sit there and wait for the firewall to uh, to let it through. Um, and then there's some little things about the application itself that we that we had to to think about. So I mentioned the um, the fact that we now have safeguard to only allow it to have two instances of itself running. Um, we have like a real time backup of the data in that database. There's no reason why we shouldn't be querying that backup instead of the uh, instead of the live database. Like query the replica instead. Right. Um, so it's just it, it's things that should be best practice, but maybe weren't thought about at the time. Um, but yeah, it's it's been a really uh, interesting learning experience for sure. That's awesome. Um, and I guess kind of stepping back. Uh, yeah, you mentioned that there was a lot of it was more of like kind of like the process sort of thing. Were there any like like lar large organizational practices that we're also look forward to for the future of like third-party applications. Like, I mean, I think we've probably also get, gotten bitten by this. I'm not personally aware of it at LinkedIn, but we also use other third-party, um, like, you know, we, we, we have a license with them and, you know, we're kind of subject to whatever client that 
uh, that, that they've provided to us. So, and a lot of times it works. And I, I think that's the really kind of like the kind of part where it's tough, where, you know, 95% of the time, 99% of the time, the software they give us from multiple vendors, potentially, they just work out of the box. So then it's like, what, what's wrong with just, you know, one more, right? Um, so yeah, I'm just curious on that side. Yeah, so I think it's it's difficult to say in this instance because it wasn't really a failure of the third party. It's more of a mis- misunderstanding it, of like yeah. what they thought you guys were going to use it for and yeah. how, how you guys were actually using it. Yeah, so they thought we were going to use it in a different way. We thought it did something completely different. Um, I don't know yet that there's been any specific uh, organization-wide um, policies put in place to do with that. Um, but I know that our team specifically are now a lot more fine-tooth comb when we're when we're picking up things from from third parties. Fair enough. Makes sense. Uh, I want to take a step back. You mentioned that this database was uh, also processing a lot of other tasks, and you mentioned when there was this full outage, people weren't able to log in. So, uh, in terms of just categorizing the issues, like if we had three categories, say major, minor, medium, for instance, this would be accounted for major, I assume. Yeah, this is uh, this is the top top priority. <laughs> this is everyone. Everyone gets paged, even if you don't know what the thing is about. You get paged because it might affect your system. Oh, interesting. So when this happened, and uh, you mentioned the blog as well, that the banners on your website would go out saying, "Hey." We know our systems are affected and we'll be working on it to fix it. Um, what does that incident management process look like? Like what happened after that? So after we started seeing the the problem, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Once you see the problem, you know there is an issue and people aren't able to log in. Like how do you go about just fixing the system then? So we're, we're pretty slick at, uh, at incident management throughout the company, not just, not just within core. Um, so we... The, the kind of process of this was the banners go up, we see, okay, lots of different services are all having problems talking to the database. Let's get the database people look at this. They, they instantly see, I mean, I'm, I'm talking within, within minutes that they'd seen, this is the query, this is running loads of times, I don't know what this is, I've not seen this before. This is something brand new. Um, at which point someone in the payments team in core says that looks like a query for the last uh, all unfulfilled payments in the last week and then you've got you've got enough people there to to kind of inject the context of well i know that 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 query has just gone live on these servers let's uh let's stop these servers from doing anything let's firewall them off um and uh and get the database in a healthy state um which yeah like i'm saying it's probably 10 15 minutes before we're we're in a, a situation where we can say okay we've identified the the cause of this problem we've mitigated it by putting banners up we've actually fixed the problem by getting rid of the the query being made from these servers we've tested it from behind banners to check that everything is working now as expected we can now go and remove the banners and allow people back onto site um, it's a lot there's a lot of um a really quick moving um like scenarios with with our incident management uh, purely because of the fact we want to get people back yeah back on site as soon as possible because it's uh, it's very very costly if if people are not able to get on site especially uh, especially in you know certain certain sporting events um you know if if an outage at uh, during the afternoon is bearable an outage in the evening when there's a big sport event on is yeah. is terrible and uh, and yeah they there's a lot of um, a lot of pressure to get things back up as soon as as possible yeah but certainly certainly reflects or more reliable system is it establishes trust with with the users of the system as well and what you describe is a really quick recovery like as soon as things started going south your team was paged or multiple teams were paged who came together and were able to recover the system really quickly uh, so talking about incident response i know you have mentioned on 
well, some of the other blogs on the website, uh, you do something which well, both Austin and I and many other folks in this domain are also interested in. Some people like to call it chaos engineering or recently resiliency engineering. Uh, you refer to this word fire drills, like you simulate failures in your system. Again, not in production, of course, but in a controlled environment so that everyone who is on the on-call rotation uh, kind of gets used to how the system works, can resolve the issue, and so that you can recover the systems fast when they actually go down. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how this process of fire drill started and how it has evolved over the last few years? Yeah, so fire drills for us are a way to run chaos engineering experiments on on our systems, computer systems, to see how they respond when we pull the rug from underneath them, like disk or network. But also we use them as a, a really effective tool for chaos engineering experiments on our people systems, like the on-call team. Very important. squads. Very, very important. Because uh, uh, I think it was Dave Rensing from Google says... Uh, Employees are buggy microservices, <laughs> which is which is so true. It is. Um, it is. <laughs> so they need as as much, if not more, uh, attention than uh, than your computer systems. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, having sound processes in place is equally important than just having sound systems. Exactly. So we started uh, we started doing fire drills um, just within core a few years ago now. And it was every Thursday morning, we would um, we'd break something, and the actual people that were on call would uh, would get paged out. Um, over the years, we've kind of we, up till recently, we did sort of just have that same pattern every Thursday morning. Um, primarily, the platform squad would break something, but we noticed that it was getting a bit stale. Um, so it was always, well, nearly always, um, platform that were breaking something and so the scenarios were getting a bit a bit samey a bit um oh the disc is broken again purely because we didn't have the the knowledge the in-depth knowledge that the engineers building the systems themselves have of those systems so we made uh we made a, a pledge that we were going to rotate around all the different squads on a weekly basis and each of them would run a scenario on their own systems um, and that's been in place for uh, ooh, maybe six seven months now maybe longer um, and uh, it's it's been really effective because not only are these scenarios more realistic and more engaging but uh, the owners of these systems that are breaking them are doing it in a way that they can they can try and understand what happens when their systems break so they're that by by trying to catch their colleagues out with a interesting problem they're inadvertently sort of resilience engineering experiment experimenting on their own systems uh, so yeah it's been really really successful this change makes sense i mean ha having the teams who understand the system more deeply create these scenarios because i would imagine uh, as the platform group itself after a while uh, it's hard to come up with new ideas on breaking your own systems uh, and, and having SMEs do that for you would result into more engaging outcomes. Uh, can you describe one of the last uh, fire drills that either your team or one of your other teams simulated, if that's okay to share on this platform? Yeah, so I uh, I did one yesterday. Oh, nice. So it's it's fresh, in, <laughs> fresh in my mind. Um, and this was uh, this was good because this was a cross tribe um, fire drill, so it, it involved us as core and also uh, the bet tribe. And um, what we did was we made a change to one of the core systems, removed some API keys, um, which meant that the uh, putting a selection onto the bet slip uh, to to actually place a bet would fail and give a bet placement unavailable error. Um, so this this kind of ran where we uh, I, I was I made the change and then I was slowly restarting Kubernetes pods instead of doing it big bang. So it was sort of like a slow degradation of service. I see. Um, and uh, and then the the bet engineer was paged and saw the 
saw the errors, thought, oh, this looks like something to do with Core. Let's call Core out, and you know, every, everyone's happy. Everyone enjoys a good, uh, a good investigative scenario, <laughs> don't they? Oh yes. Uh, but what we uh, what we spent time doing is uh, is making uh, focusing a lot on the realism and the immersion of the of the fire drills. So we've got this uh, this Slack bot where you as the the exercise coordinator can type in what you want to say but who you want to say it as oh nice uh in so, interesting very interesting yeah so you can say like uh tech desk it says we're seeing a lot of calls coming through from the contact center to say that customers are unable to place bets um and it, it's just another one of those things that helps keep people in the moment and and uh and treat it like it is real because it's all too easy to just you know i ain't got time for this um, <laughs> i've got i've got more important work to be doing i'll leave yes. other people to deal with that problem uh, whereas if it's actually engaging and entertaining then it's a lot more a lot more interesting a lot easier to get people involved in it oh yeah sure thing i mean it's, it's more of a it's a cultural shit or it's more of a culture that people buy into uh you mentioned yeah. that it's so first of all how long do some of these fire drills go on for so we we book out the morning um but it doesn't take that full time so we we allocate one hour um purely because um we want to put a window on it so that if somebody needs to do something in the environment in which we're running the drill um we're not blocking them from doing what they need to do um because while we don't use customer facing production we do use like our production disaster recovery environments so that we can have a, a truly representative uh, environment to do the testing in, in terms of like application scale and, and everything like that. So we, we time box that to an hour. And then we, um, what we were doing previously is having a, a retrospective as if it was um, a post-incident review of a real incident um, and then raising any actions and sending them off to, to, the, uh, to the relevant squad to deal with what we do now is we have a specific uh, hour after the end of the fire drill where we have the the retrospective straight away ticket everything up and then if it's small bits like documentation changes then we just do them then and there instead of um, necessarily passing them off to someone else to do so it's been really good and it's, it's helped get a lot of low-hanging fruit whereas otherwise it'd go and sit on someone's backlog for x number of years before it actually <laughs> becomes important enough to do oh yeah uh, doing the retrospective right away uh sounds like a good idea because it's so much the incident is so much fresh in your mind and you know exactly the improvements to make uh can you tell us a little bit about the what, what the anatomy of the fire drill looks like before you actually start so let's say you mentioned you do it every week so i'm assuming you you or other team members would be thinking of certain scenarios beforehand. Uh, you don't think of what you're going to break that day itself. Uh, and the scenario that you create would also be something, I, this is just, again, an assumption. You might be sharing it with your team members for learning it at a later point. So what does that look like? Like, how do you structure this in docs? When do you prepare for these things? Like, do you have a list of scenarios that you want to cycle through? So for platforms specifically, um, now, now that we don't own every fire drill, um, we no longer have like visibility of what the other squads are planning, unfortunately, or fortunately, because it makes <laughs> it more realistic. Yes. Um, but the uh, there's two main sources of uh, of where we pull our scenarios from. One is past incidents. Mm, nice. So we. Uh, because we're using the fire drills not just as um, as experimenting on the computer systems, it's the people systems as well. We say, oh, that process kind of broke down in that the last time we had this incident. Let's run it again and see how people respond this time. Um, and the other source is uh, it's just people's brains and figuring what's what's the worst that could happen. Yeah. Um, or what would happen if if X and um, we as platform have a list of um, of potential scenarios to run, and uh, like uh, if you want to simulate this happening, run this command on this server. Uh, here's what you should see. Here is where you'll see the evidence that it's having the desired effect. Here is how you back it out quickly, and here is how people would probably go about fixing it. 
I see. Nice. Makes sense. So you, you mentioned now that the other tribes are also doing this. You you don't always have visibility into what will be happening, which is in a way is good. It's more realistic. So if, say, for instance, one of your on-call team members gets paged. How do they differentiate between a real page versus a page from a fire drill? I'm afraid we uh, we're a bit of a cop out. So when we when we raise the pages, uh, we we prefix it with fire drill. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> I know. Like, yeah, it's, it's in an ideal world. <laughs> yeah, in an in an ideal world, we'd not only be not doing that, but we'd be doing it in production as well, like in customer facing environments. Oh, that's risky. Uh, that, it's, it's it's hard to get right. <laughs> it's it's very hard to get right, but we can all dream. Oh yes, yes. Uh, I'm curious. Have uh, you mentioned you don't necessarily do this on production systems, which makes sense? Have any of the fire drills gone sideways, uh, where someone tried to simulate a failure, but it got worse uh, than what they're planned for? Um, I can't think of any that have gone worse. I can think of lots where they've gone not at all how we expected oh okay um, I, I would love to hear just, a scenario if you can share it <laughs> so we've had we had one where we thought right what we're going to do we're going to take this database down and this is going to break everything for everyone mm. uh non-production of course yeah, yeah. so we we ran what we thought would happen um and the systems just seemed to handle it and <laughs> just did not be bothered at all so system is so we're, yeah it's pretty good <laughs> yeah so we're here like waiting waiting to page all these people and say top priority priority one incident everybody all hands on deck yeah. and and nothing's broken at all <laughs> well, how, how rarely does that happen <laughs> very rare i wish it happened more often <laughs> yeah nice uh so you, you also touched a little bit on once you like, you've been doing it every week, which is a pretty good frequency in my opinion, um, and there is a trade-off between spending time on a fire drill versus, like you mentioned, doing other things like project work because everyone's planning for new features and new things they want to get out. How do you, as a as an organization, how do you balance this trade-off and justify the cost of doing fire drills every week uh, as it relates to the amount of time you invest in the project work that needs to happen? I, this is something I feel very strongly about, and I, this is a a, uh, a horn I blow a lot to get people to listen to, um, and it, it is something that the company accepts, thankfully. But I can imagine in other organisations it may not may not be the case, and you may need to do a lot of um, a lot of bargaining. the uh, The way I see it, and the way I put it to people, is that if you have a, a team that is focusing solely on features and new shiny things in your application that's fine but there comes a point where it doesn't matter how many new features you add if you suddenly have an outage and every system crashes because there's been no thought put into the resiliency of that system it doesn't matter how fancy your uh, your application is if no one can get to it because you've not thought about how it handles failure people have no loyalty right yeah as soon as that happens, they're going to go to the competitor who, yeah, their their website may not be using the latest and greatest JavaScript framework for its web page, but it works. All, it, as long there. as it works, yeah, I can place a bet. No, well, that is really well put. That is really well put. Uh, so, do you have any advice or thoughts for organizations who are thinking about uh, chaos engineering or resili- resiliency engineering and just getting started? This is not something that they have done, but they are thinking about starting it. Yeah, the first thing I think you need to know and you need to have in place before you can even start thinking about breaking your system is having the observability nailed. So if you're going to expend the effort by uh, expend the effort to have your engineers breaking the systems, if they haven't got the ability to deep dive into exactly what the application is doing when it's being broken, then it's wasted effort. The first thing you need to do before you even think about breaking stuff is ensure that you have a total um, total knowledge of what's going on in your platform. It doesn't necessarily have to be like, you know, distributed tracing level down to that, you know, down that deep, but you do have to be able to see 
when your system and services are, are misbehaving. And then in terms of actually getting started on stuff, there's, there is a, a temptation, if you like, to go with the easy, obvious things to break, like the network goes away. That's, that's going to happen, sure, but that's not very exciting. You're not going to get your engagement up. The best thing, is, and we learned this too late, this is why our fire drills went stale. The easiest way and the best way to get people, um, to get a buy-in from people in the business is to involve people in the business and get them thinking how their own systems can break. Instead of, instead of um, you know, the platform team coming in and saying, we're going to break your system and tell you what's wrong with it and how you need to fix it. Instead of doing that, it's about, right, let's, as a, as a team, as a collective, let's look at your system and see how could it break? What have you thought about this? Uh, you don't know what happens if, if this goes away. Well, let's take this downstream dependency away and see how your application behaves. Yeah, um, these have been great discussions. Um, I think even like all the talk about the fire drills, I think this would be a a wonderful onboarding tool for even new engineers. Um, I would think this is something that happens in many organizations, many companies. New engineers come in, they, they don't know like how the layout of the land is. Um, but with these fire drills, I think it's, it's, it's a very real way to kind of immerse them into this environment so that they can quickly figure out like, oh, my application talks to these other applications and those sorts of things where without that Unfortunately, it's kind of learned on call, which I think is a lot, what a lot of companies kind of do. And it's fair for the on-call engineers to go in and be like, I'm terrified. I'm like, yeah, it's going to take some time. Um, but with these, it, it, I think it's, it's, like, it's probably less stressful for them. But I think it's a wonderful experience for new engineers to come in and be like, I can do this in a safe environment. And when I do go on call for real, like, it's not as it's not scary, which is, which is a great feeling. It's, it's throwing people in at the deep end, but you've given them like um, a rubber ring. They've got like flotation devices all over them. They're not going to sink. They might feel scared for the first 10 seconds or so, but actually they're going to realize that it's safe to do. And by the time they get rid of the flotation devices and they're actually on call, it's like the deep end, that's fine. As part as part of going on call um, onto our on call rotation, you have to have gone through a number of fire drill uh, experiences before you can actually go on call. That's perfect. Cool. Um, so, I'd like to kind of this is a question that we ask uh, all all of uh, the folks that come on to our podcast. So, I don't know what are given that you you've you have a huge breadth given that you've kind of like put together these fire drills, you've probably worked with a lot of tools at this point and the DevOps space or in other places. Um, so where was kind of maybe the, the last tool that you discovered and that you just really uh, enjoyed using or really liked? Um, it might, it might seem kind of a cop out cause it's not, it's not what you might think. There, there, right. there is no wrong answer here. There's no right. Yeah. <laughs> so, I recently went back from Bash to uh, ZSH, um, and uh, and I found this uh, this theme called P uh, Power Power something Power Level Ten K, and um, and what it is, it's it uh, take you know if you have loads of plugins in ZSH, it kind of slows your prompt down, <laughs> and yes. you press enter, and you just get the gaps on your terminal. Um, this it, I don't know how it does it. It's magic. It sort of lazy loads your plugins, but gives you a prompt straight away, and um, and then it fills your prompt with all these super low latency uh, utilities. So it's it does like your your Git um, or subversion or whatever uh, version control in your prompt. It gives you um, a clock that actually counts up the seconds in your prompt instead of being the time that you press that you last press enter which i think is amazing i think every every prompt should come with that oh, yeah <laughs> so yeah i don't i don't know if if uh, a zsh theme is going to be the most exciting tool that you're going to get on this segment ever but it, it amazed me purely because of like how how it manages to take something that would take literal seconds to load up your prompt and just makes it like 10 milliseconds before you have a prompt. I, I just found it amazing to see it. Yeah, no, that's that's huge. I mean, I think for 
anyone who's working in this space, probably some of the most frustrating things is you're trying to run something and you're like, oh, I have to wait a few, just even like three seconds is enough to just like how any of us go a little bit crazy. <laughs> um, so that that's really neat. Thanks wait, for sharing what, that. What are the team name again? <laughs> it's power level 10K. Okay, power level 10K. 10. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And um, so where can people find you on the internet and learn more about what you're up to these days now? Um, I, I tweet occasionally um, on uh, at hey it's alls, all one word. Um, I'm, I'm sometimes, I sometimes mess about on the, on the Fediverse, but I'm getting a bit bored of that, so maybe not. Um, my, uh, my website is alls.wtf which I sometimes write blog posts on, sometimes don't. But if, if I'm going to be active, it's on there, basically. It's on there or Twitter. Awesome. And is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners today? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, oh, well, actually, yeah, go, go and break stuff. Because <laughs> <laughs> you, don't, you don't know how things work until you've broken them. Yeah, that's, that's true. Plus, yep. plus one to that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's been a blast having you on our podcast, Alls. Um, so thank you so much for coming on to the show. Yeah, cheers. It's been brilliant. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and learn more about us at softwaremisadventures.com. You can also write to us at hello at softwaremisadventures.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, take care. <laughs>